0: Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I'm doing okay. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. All things considered. I'm busy. I'm telling you, I've complained this on multiple podcasts at this point, but what's another one? I feel like because no one is traveling or going anywhere, what is usually the slowest month, August is just insane. There's like stuff happening constantly. It started off where it got very slow in March where everyone's locked down and people don't know what to do and people are nervous. And obviously there's this overwhelming sense of doom. And you know, the weird thing is, obviously it's not that stuff has changed that much, but we talked about this on the last episode, people have sort of adapted and now they're like making up for a lost time and there's just like news coming out everywhere. Right. And no more so than in the Capitol. That's right. So last week, last Wednesday, the Antitrust Subcommittee of the Judiciary Committee in the House had a hearing with the four tech CEOs, Apple, Google, Facebook, and Amazon. Microsoft was notable by its absence, but it was clearly a focus on consumer tech. And the reason I say that this was clear is not just because Satya Nadell wasn't there. But it became pretty clear through the questioning that Tim Cook was only there because they kind of wanted to say that they got all of them because they were not prepared to ask him questions at all. It was clear that all of the work of the committee has been mostly focused on, I would say first and foremost, Amazon. They had, I thought they had the most detailed stuff there. They were pretty detailed about Google. They were somewhat detailed about Facebook, but you could see sort of the quality of questionings really starting to come down there. And then they didn't even know what the percentages were in the app store. Like it was kind of embarrassing. They would ask Cook a question. And let him just talk because they didn't know what to ask next. Whereas everyone else are like interrupting because they wanted they had points they wanted to make, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought that difference in the quality of questioning per company was pretty striking. Yeah, it's interesting. The New York Times ran a
1: tally of the questions, and I thought that in itself was interesting. And it looked pretty evenly spaced. And then Apple was just like 50% of the other
0: three. It's frustrating in a way because obviously I've been sort of fixated on the App Store for literally since the beginning of techery. Like one of my first set of articles back in 2013 was trying to understand why Apple is doing such a crappy job of managing the App Store, and one of my conclusions there was, you know, they're so scarred from their near-death experience in the 90s, when they had to beg Adobe and Microsoft to continue supporting the Mac so it could remain viable. And I wrote this back in 2013, that they would never allow themselves to be in that position again. And what's well, so interesting about that is the way that has manifested is that again this is just a long running thing. for Checkery is that they've really handicapped productivity apps in particular. It's hard to make money. You can't charge upgrades, This is a really important sort of business model. The way it's worked on other platforms like the internet, which Tim Cook pretends doesn't exist. You notice how his testimony—they jump straight from brick and mortar to the app store. There's no intervening period there where you could buy stuff on the internet. It's funny because when you read his testimony, you don't notice until you, someone points it out. to You's like, oh my word, yeah. He just kind of skip 15 years of distribution. So I didn't watch it all, but I
1: did watch part of it. And the only thing that I can remember is someone was questioning him around, he gets complete control of which apps. And he's like, oh, well, if they're native apps, that's true, except web apps. So I think his nod to the internet was like little buttons that you
0: create in Safari. Which, by the way, are totally handicapped. Progressive web apps are totally handicapped on iOS, and it wipes away all their cookies and settings after a week in the off. One of the interesting things about this is because Apple was held captive by productivity apps in the 90s, all of their sort of onerous app store terms, in my estimation, have mostly affected would be productivity apps. And you end up in a situation where you get no great and innovative apps on these platforms, in part because there's too much risk. Like maybe you're going to build something and Apple's not going to approve it, or there's no business model. And it just doesn't make sense. To make a new sort of productivity app is the most difficult, in depth. App, you have to sort of have to build it from a physical APIs on the device sort of perspective, and what actually has come to dominate are all these network based apps that are mostly API driven. And what's interesting is because Apple is not a social company, iMessage notwithstanding, that they kind of weren't paying attention to that. And what happened was, we talked about this in China, where WeChat actually became the exact sort of dominant app that I think the App Store was designed to limit. But because they weren't sort of paying attention, they ended up the exact same situation as the 90s. Now, obviously, Apple as a company is much stronger than back then. It's not even remotely comparable. but. The fact that WeChat is more important than your phone is definitely the case. You know, they talk about it's like, oh, we treat all apps the same. Well, then why does WeChat have a mini app store for all intents and purposes and no one else has allowed it? Like one of the most obvious examples of apps not being treated the same. And it's not treated the same because WeChat is more important than the iPhone.
1: Yeah. We've touched on this in previous episodes, but it's like a really really good point. I mean, just as you were saying that productivity apps and like they're thinking about Microsoft and Adobe and you think really like if Office isn't available on the iPhone, that's really going to be the thing that does it in. And it it turns out to be one of those cases where your immune system overlearns the lesson and ends up fighting the last war, just like I don't know the other metaphor I love is like the French with the Maginot line and the Germans and they're fighting world war one. And then a whole bunch of panzer tanks just bash through the wall and you don't know what hit you. I was
0: going to say generals fight the last war, but your immune system fights the last war is a No, I like it for three reasons. Number one, I always like mixed metaphors. <laughs> number two, it works, right? immune systems fight wars. and yes, to your point, number three, it's very timely given this current environment. So well done by you. Yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> Anyhow, It is frustrating because in some respects, the Apple questions are the easiest to ask. It's like, does Apple Music pay 30%? If yes, how do you account for that? Because you're all the same company. If no, why is it fair that Apple Music does not pay 30% but Spotify does if they want to be on the platform? Cook can spin all he wants. Just the question itself is so blatantly unfair. You sent out an email before the hearing with
1: questions for each company. And I have to say, yeah, Apple questions were the best. And I think that... Oh, uh,
0: dude, I had to whim them. I had so many for them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it was very much a reflection of where your focus is. It's interesting, though. And I think perhaps this is where you and I have differed a little bit over the past. Like Compared to some of the other companies that are on stage, I get the reason why you're Focus on Apple and those questions are absolutely brilliant. But I feel like the problem Apple poses is perhaps narrower, at least through a certain lens, than
0: some of the problems that the other companies that were up there pose. It's such a great observation. And I want to be super clear. The reason why I'm so much more focused, at least in these questions, I agree with you that the Apple questions were the most pointed gets at not because I think Apple is a bigger problem for democracy or a bigger problem for the world than these other companies. It's because the problems presented by Apple fall very neatly into the problems that antitrust is designed to address. And if you back up and you look at the arc of sort of strategy talk about antitrust and it really started in 2015 when I wrote about aggregation theory. And I wrote an article that summer saying, look, this is like aggregators present a huge problem for antitrust because you're dealing with consumers choosing something that you don't want them to choose. And how do you control that? And I sort of refined that in 2016 an article called antitrust and aggregation. And I bring this up because this is my frustration with the antitrust debate broadly is there's a tussle about antitrust. And we get into that, like between the quote unquote Chicago school the New Brandeis school and the Harvard school, et cetera, et cetera. And what does antitrust mean? And my... Concern and you think about what is the sort of core animating principle of strategy, What's the key insight? And I've talked about going back to business school, right? When I would strategy 101 and getting all those things, you no know, internet companies. I'm like, how can you teach a strategy course where not a single company in this course has zero marginal cost goods? Because that's the issue. That's what makes everything about technology different is when you're doing zero marginal cost goods. Yes, the old equations work, but once you put zero in the equation, everything just becomes very messy messed up and weird, right? And antitrust, I think, is a weeding example here. And so one of the drums I've been beating on, and you know, these aren't popular articles, right? People want to hear about products and Apple and Amazon and sort of that to get into like the finer points of regulation. Like I think I wrote this piece, you know, last December, you know, a framework for thinking about regulation, not a popular article. Like I, I link to it a lot because I think it's important. But the reason I keep pushing on it is it's not to like, Toot my own horn that, oh, about aggregation theory, you should read this. I actually think it really matters. It really matters. The structure of a value chain really matters if you want to think about how to regulate these companies and how to think about their effects on competition, on democracy, and all those sorts of things. And this is such a great example. Apple has an app store where they control access. You either on it or you're not it's super duper clear where the potential abuse is. It's also super clear what the benefit is. Platforms are amazing things. They are one of the best things that technology has sort of come up with is because it creates new businesses to a much greater extent than aggregators are, right? Aggregators are sort of like harvesting everyone's work and being a funnel to it. And Yes, Google is very useful. It's probably the most useful tech product ever. But the thing about platforms, like whether it be Windows, whether it be the app store is without them, the products on top of them could not exist. But it's precisely the high value that they provide that means the potential abuse is so great. But that potential abuse is very understandable and correctable. And so that's why it's easy to write about Apple and the App Store, because it's very clear what they're doing that is wrong. And it's actually very easy to fix from a regulatory perspective.
1: It's almost like this is the one where the pattern most fits the existing equation. Whereas the others, perhaps there are more zeros in the equation that make it more difficult to understand. And whereas Apple might fit more neatly within the existing rules, like Talking about the others requires an examination of whether we need to change the rules or what the right rules are going forward.
0: That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And so if you go in front of an antitrust committee, it's like, well, yeah, I can come up with lots of antitrust questions about Apple. You get into something like, we'll just take Google, right? Google, which seems to be the most straightforward case. And Google will say, and it drives everyone up the wall, (laughs) the competition is only a click away. And what is so frustrating from a regulatory perspective is that that's true. (laughs) You really can go to another search engine. You can type Yelp.com in your browser. Now, Yelp feels very aggrieved because they used to get a lot of traffic from Google and then they got less, but you're starting to get into the era of a sense of entitlement that Google... Ought to give them traffic when shouldn't their job be to win customer affection so that customers go to Yelp directly? There is nothing that Google does that prevents users from typing Yelp.com into their browser or downloading the Yelp.com app. Whereas Apple, if they say you're not in the App Store, you're not in the App Store. So there's no recourse. We've litigated the Yelp and Google thing. I mean,
1: I think that point is really interesting, but I think there's a broader point here, which is I think this marks the point at which people are starting to feel the more important aspect of antitrust is not enforcing the existing laws on the existing equations or the people that might be breaking the existing laws, but rather these new companies that don't fit the existing laws. Like inherently, I don't think anyone's articulated it quite like this. Maybe what this was as much about was like, okay, I think it's time to update
0: the laws. Right, which I actually think fits with the sort of Google-Yelp discussion, I think, more cleanly, right? Because you've seen this in Europe where you can look at it like, well, just look at the share of searches, and Google has a dominant share, so they're a monopoly, right? That's fine. There is obviously a logic to that, and certainly Google has done very anti-competitive things, particularly like 10 years ago when they were actually like scraping like Yelp and Jim yeah. Advisor contents. I mean, that's the thing, right? Well, no, it's just totally egregious. And it's ridiculous that they didn't get any sort of punishment for that. So they just agree not to do it anymore. Again, I disagree with that decision. I'm not saying that Google is not acting poorly. and This is actually a really important distinction to make. You need to think about this in pieces. You can't say that Google is acting poorly. Therefore, antitrust is the right solution. Because what you did is you conflated two completely different issues. And you've seen this in Europe, where there was this classic example where Europe, they had the Google shopping case, where I thought it was, of all the antitrust decisions that Europe's had about Google, I thought this was by far the most problematic. Because in this case, they were arguing on behalf of price comparison sites, and they were basically saying that if you search for sneakers, that Google should present you links to price comparison sites. As opposed to presenting you links to sneakers, right? So just from a product perspective, it's like, actually, when Google was delivering links to product comparison sites, they were actually probably doing a bad job of search. And I'm sorry that you built your business on Google doing poorly, but the fact that Google is doing a better job now is a little less compelling to me. Because guess what? If you go to Google and you type price comparison site, guess what Google gives you? price comparison sites, right? And then also Google Shopping was ads. Is it because you're presenting an ad that makes it illegal? Like you're challenging like the fundamentals of monetization, etc. Anyhow, leave that aside. Don't send me an email. <laughs> leave that to go read the articles. The problem is that they said Google had to fix it. So Google comes back and they offer up this solution where, okay, we're gonna have a carousel, like classic carousel, going to the Windows Media Player back in the day. Europe loves their carousels, and they're gonna have price comparison sites, have the Google shopping, et cetera, et cetera. And the users can choose what they want. And the European Commission is like, Yeah, that sounds great. It looks like a good solution. We've done this comparison thing before, works out. Turns out, six months later, like, yeah, that's a bad solution. And why was it a bad solution? Because consumers were not sufficiently visiting sites other than Google or were not clicking on the carousel onto a pricing comparison site. Cause guess what? It turns out when people search for sneakers, guess what they want? Sneakers. They want sneakers. And people kept choosing sneakers instead of choosing a price comparison site that they weren't actually searching for. And so then they're like, Oh, well, we have to rework this. And you can see how you're just, you're rolling around in the mud, right? Like you're not going anywhere because what's the actual problem here. What is Google's actual monopoly? Google's monopoly is not because they control all the internet pipes that use type tripadvisor.com and you magically end up on Google. Wow, that's so unfair. No, the problem is individual users making choices. And to have a regulatory perspective that's predicated in a world of scarcity, where you are taking those that control scarce resources and forcing them to share or forcing them to provide open APIs or breaking them up, that approach is fundamentally misapplied in a world of abundance where people are making lots of individual choices. Now, again, that's not to say that Google isn't a problem. It's not to say that it's not a problem that 90% or 80% of searches happen on Google. It's not to say it's not a problem that Google scraped information. It's not a problem to say that Google sort of larding up their page full of ads and making it very difficult for folks is not a problem. It's not to say it's not a problem that Google pays Apple billions of dollars so they're the default to help protect their position. All those are potential problems. But just because they're problems does not mean they're antitrust problems. And I get so frustrated at the continual conflation of those things, and you just end up fixing nothing. That was a pretty classic Ben rant. I um. (laughs) I, <laughs> this is honestly one of my single greatest frustrations over the entire course of writing Short Techery is this antitrust point. Like I rarely travel anymore. The way I say about speaking is I used to do speaking like for pay. Now I only do speaking for free, by which I mean I go to these antitrust conferences. I go to these government presentations. And this is exactly what I talk about again and again and again. Cause it's frustrating. It's frustrating because it's counterproductive and it's actively damaging. If you regulate something you don't understand, at best you're getting unintended consequences at worst you're deeply entrenching the folks that you're regulating in Europe in particular so what we see again and again and again Sorry, I'm still fired up.
1: Yeah, I know. It was also an excellent point. Buttressing. I'm not going to say making the point I made, but maybe buttressing the point I made, which is like, okay, these things maybe work for the old world and maybe Apple and the App Store fits into the old world, but there are a whole series of companies that don't fit into the old world. And this is the thing more than anything else I wanted to talk to you about tonight, which is what should be the organizing principle for regulating the new world?
0: I have some thoughts, but I'm curious to hear what yours are. Let's back up. Number one is I just want to reemphasize, rebuttress, if I may, that, that this is absolutely my number one takeaway is that we need new laws. You see folks trying to convince the FTC or the judiciary, go the attorneys general. And the problem is that I feel like people look at how difficult it is to pass meaningful legislation in the yeah, U.S. and, and they say, Yeah, it's a shortcut, right? And it's like, yeah, regulation isn't easy or going through the courts isn't easy, but it's easier than this. And you can kind of understand why they did that because in some respects, the sort of Chicago School of Antitrust managed to create new antitrust law via the courts without it ever sort of being legislated in Congress. I mean, the U.S. definitely approaches antitrust differently than they did 50 years ago. Like, there's no question about that, but there was no new law passed. So you can see the temptation, oh, let's do that, but in the Opposite direction. And I think there's a categorization problem, which is the Chicago school was clearly addressing antitrust. It was just a different approach to antitrust. It used to be that antitrust approaches were sort of structural. You looked at, is there a competition in the market, et cetera, et cetera. But the problem is they weren't very rigorous and they weren't very theoretical. So you would have sort of broad statements about vertical integration and sorts of things that if you actually thought through the economics didn't make sense. So you would have situations like, Oh, if you own one part of the value chain and then you vertically integrate to another part of the value chain, you can jack up prices on both parts of the value chain. I mean, we're getting into the sort of the weeds of pricing theory, but the monopoly maximizing price is the price for the entire value chain. So it makes no sense to say you will jack up prices in two parts of the value chain because you're going to come off of the monopoly profit maximizing price, right? So if you own the whole value chain, the price that matters is the value chain as a whole. So it makes no sense to say that owning multiple parts and jacking up the prices on both of those parts is going to happen because you just sell fewer things, right? And so. I think that was one of the core sort of insights of the Chicago School. It's obviously right. If you think about how a company would think about pricing, right? So let's say you're building a widget and the widget has three parts, you know, A, B, and C. You don't say, okay, I have a monopoly on part A, so I'm going to jack up the price on part A. Oh, okay, it all makes sense, right? You say, oh, I'm going to jack up the price of part A to the maximizing price where so the most people will buy it. I can make the maximum profit, et cetera, et cetera. If you then acquire part B, the way it used to be thought about is that, oh, I'm going to jack up the price of part B and get the maximizing price. The problem is if you jack up the price of part B, you're going to sell fewer parts A because the widget as a whole is becoming more expensive. So the problem is is the sort of theory was too focused on components and didn't think enough about the widget as a whole. Whereas a monopoly to maximize their price, they're going to balance the prices of A and B such that the widget as a whole sells more. And so a big focus of the Chicago School was particularly attacking this question of vertical integration, which used to be a big no-no and being like, okay, the thinking about this doesn't make any economic sense. Now, over time, they sort of attacked more and more pieces of this. And I think just broadly speaking, it was much more of an economic focus. And it was based on price theory. And price theory... You've sort of been known as sort of the consumer welfare standard, but the consumer welfare standard is really price, which means that generally speaking, price is taken as an indicator of you know questions of monopoly and antitrust. And so the new Brandeis school, the sort of new school is coming along and saying, look, we've gotten too focused on an outcome that outcome being price or consumer welfare. And we've lost sight of structural concerns. I'm not a member of the new Brandeis school. I'm very sympathetic to a lot of their views, particularly in a world of aggregators that cost zero dollars. But I don't think anyone's saying we need to go to a world where we ignore economic theory, but sort of restructure what sort of the goals are. I mean, Europe is much more competition as a goal in and of itself. But the classic new Brandeis school is that We have to think about competition not just in terms of price and consumer welfare, but also its impact on sort of the political system sort of broadly and sort of a much more broad-based view. And this is exactly the point that I wanted to get to with you on this, which is
1: there's research, and we touched on this many, many episodes ago. It was research done by a professor by the name of David Moss at Harvard. He's also an economist, and he basically went back and looked at the history of political debate inside of Congress over the last 100, 120 years And he found the most fascinating thing, that the nature of the debate, the primacy, almost the principal stack, if you will, of what people focused on in the debate changed. And it used to be that in the early 20th century through the 1920s up until around the 1930s, the primary focus in these debates was – what's good for democracy. And I have a suspicion that something between the depression and World War II, and at least that's what the timing points to, the nature of the debate started to change. Now, it wasn't that they didn't pay attention to economics and pricing and so on beforehand, but the primacy switched from what was good to democracy to what was good for economics. And the nature of it started to shift. It started to shift from kind of what you described, the Brandis School, kind of focusing on the more broader structural things to much more economic, econometric theory, figuring out what was going to get the economic maximum. And again, I can kind of understand this. This research was interesting to me for a couple of reasons. One is you look at the difference in the way that Congress approached regulating radio in the 1920s versus regulating television in the 1960s and now regulating it again the chairman of the antitrust committee mentioned impact of democracy, but it felt like that a lot of the questioning, with a few exceptions, a lot of the questioning that the tech execs were subject to was much more economic primacy focused as opposed to democracy focused. And given the importance that these companies have to the fabric of society, I kind of wish that that had been flipped back to where it was. And Part of the reason I feel like it's almost like a nested version of the Clay Christensen point, which is disruption occurs when companies focus on economics first, as opposed to the purpose of the business. And it causes them to go up market. They sow the seeds of their own disruption by focusing on economics. And the other point that was best illustrated by, I feel like, Steve Jobs, and he talked about this in contrast with Scully. It's like, Don't focus on the economics. Focus on doing great products and the economics kind of take care of themselves. And I feel like there's a nested version of this when it comes to democracy and it it needs to be economic serving democracy and it feels like the nature of the questioning flipped. It's a great
0: observation. There's a few points I sort of want to pull apart in there. I think one is just generally speaking, I think the antitrust is a good example of this. It's very easy to look at a movement and view its excesses and condemn the whole thing, whereas you sometimes forget that the movement was necessary in the first place. So, for example, the Chicago School was a necessary corrective to what's called the Harvard School, which is what it was called before the Chicago School, as opposed to the New Brandeis School, which is the more sort of modern one. It was a necessary corrective to an approach to antitrust that didn't pay any attention to economics. You know what I mean? But the problem, and this happens again and again, where a movement is correct It comes and makes changes, but then it sort of keeps going. And then it's like a pendulum swinging back and forth. And sometimes you swing too far to the other side. And I think it's just something to keep in mind. And you talk about like with the great depression and World War two. Yes. The timing is obvious. You can understand why at that time a centralization and focus on the economy became very important. And then you move directly into a period where America is the dominant world superpower, which you think would tend towards more sort of centralization and and increased federal government and larger companies, et cetera, et cetera. And again, I'm not disagreeing with you. I just think it's important thing to always keep in mind. You see people reacting to the worst excesses of a movement and forgetting that when the movement came about, it might've actually been the correct fix. That's point number one. Makes a ton of sense. Point number two, though, is I love the framing about this. Caring about something in the short run works out in the short run. But in the long run, it actually may very well lead you astray. And what's fascinating about it is it leads you astray not just in the perspective of something you claim to care about more, like democracy, and is it a problem that you have such large companies and their impact on the political process, but also the impact on the economy as a whole. If your focus is the economy, can you focus on the economy so much that you end up hurting the economy? I think when it comes to Something like innovation—that's a very obvious problem because innovation. Do you think about disruption? Disruption—the whole idea—is companies that are incapable. This is the thing about disruption. My big sort of disagreement with Professor Christensen, in many respects, was that his diagnosis was so brilliant, but the problem is that in true disruption, there's like nothing you can do. It's like, if you're facing true disruption, the prescription is, sorry, you're screwed. (laughs) You know, it's like, I hope your bedside manner is better than that. But, um, you know, if you're facing true disruption with someone with a completely different sort of technical approach and their price is massively undercutting you and for you to sort of match it, you're going to have to abandon all your best customers and make them unhappy. Like, you can't do that. You have to serve your best customers. They're the ones that are paying the bills. They're the ones that your stockholders care about, et cetera, et cetera. And the problem from a company perspective, is that over time, you know, the lower entry becomes better and better, and then they start taking more and more of your customers, and eventually you're just in trouble. That's okay. Our view from a societal perspective should be that that's fine. That's actually healthy. That's how we get new innovations, new companies. Having turnover is a good thing. And I think this distinction is an important one, where what is good for companies is not necessarily what's good for society. And when you conflate those two, that's when you really get in trouble. It was so interesting
1: because one of the things I really appreciated about your weekly article was kind of drawing a distinction between recognising that the chairman, who's a Democrat, Cicilline, I think is how you yep, pronounce right. the name. He did mention the democracy point, though we probably anchored a little bit more heavily on the economic point. But when you look at the line of questioning from the Democrats, it was very much anchored in terms of economics. Actually, what was interesting was comparing it to the Republican line of questioning. And to be fair, the line of questioning that they had around democracy was narrow, which is, and it's an important one, but it was Narrow and
0: conspirational. yes, Yes, a
1: little. But it was like, why are you censoring us? Now, that is a really good question. And that does speak to democracy. But that's not the same question as, or it doesn't lead to the same questions, or it doesn't even lead necessarily to the same hearing that we have. If you start with the question, what is actually best for democracy when we think about these tech platforms? And I was struggling to think what the questions might be that would change. But I realized like, if you're really asking that question, maybe it ends up being that you don't have the four tech CEOs playing congressional theater up there. You actually have a series of different people up there and you're asking them different questions to figure out what this world might look like instead.
0: You know, To be fair, they've had multiple hearings. So everyone pays attention to this one. I think a way to think about the Republican questioning versus the Democratic questioning and the high credit to representatives. And there were some good questions on the Republican side, too, particularly around the interplay between privacy and competition, which I think is such a critical point that is easily forgotten about. But by and large, Democrats had a lot of really good questions. There was a series of questions about the Google ad market that was just so well done because it's a hard thing to understand. And to get that in five minutes was really, really impressive. That was just one of many good examples. But the difference that you're sort of feeling around is, yeah, the Republican questions seem sort of, you know, they're so focused on this narrow point and conservatives do very well on social media by and large. Like, like is this really something that you need to be focused on? But what you were sensing is that the Democrats may have been closer to sort of the trunk of the tree right? They did a good job of getting into much more detail than other hearings we've had with tech CEOs. They were much less differential. There was a lot of research that was done. They were closer to the trunk. They weren't out on the fringes, right? Yes. But it was the Republicans that were on a different tree, and they were on the political tree. That was the point I was trying to make. Like, Yes, the Republicans may have been further from the trunk. That's sort of the point you were just making, right? They weren't getting into the crux of the problem, but they were in a different problem space, The point is, if these companies are so large and so dominant, then that means they can control political speech. Like, that's the distillation of the Republican point. And say what you want about the specifics of their questioning. They were in a different place than the Democrats and actually probably closer to the space that you are concerned about.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that characterization. It is interesting, though, in the context of what was going on on Capitol Hill outside of these congressional hearings with relation to big tech, though, which is the show that is TikTok right now. It's gone from short form video on my phone to like a long form all over Twitter based on the madness. And I grant you what you just said about the Republicans in the congressional hearing, but in so much as the White House has got a Republican in it right now acting like a mafioso when really we spent an hour really going at it in the last episode of exponent on all the dangers to democracy that tiktok posed and he boiled it down to just like it sounded like a shakedown of a foreign company and then the u.s government was going to take a cut and i don't know it just it really troubled me
0: oh for sure i mean (laughs) i'm gonna have a little beef with you right now no please. i made a broad-based sort of philosophical point and you tried to paint me with trump I I, I know you didn't mean it, but I actually welcome it because I think it's an important distinction to draw. So there's a few things to say here. Number one, the fact that I'm saying the Republicans are on the political tree and the Democrats are on the economic tree does not mean there was purposeful thinking. Right. I think that there is a thought that this is something that the Republican base cares about. They're going to focus on it. And that can be completely independent of, oh, there's a well thought out Republican strategy and Republicans are deeply concerned about democracy. Spot on. Like, it does feel very instinctual rather than being driven by principal stacks, doesn't it? That's right. And so my observation, and maybe I should have been clear about this in the article, is not that there was, you know, and I talk about like this bargain that was being presented to big tech by Republicans. I don't even know that the bargain was explicit. And in some respects, you know, it's natural that the Republicans are going to be more favorable towards big business. That's traditionally what they've been. And they're concern in part because of this populist sort of aspect of the party that's come along with Trump about these issues. And so it was an implicit bargain. It wasn't necessarily an explicit one. So when my observations of this were not saying that there's party elders in smoke-filled rooms cutting these deals, but it's sort of observing what is sort of emerging as what the reality of the politics were. That was the point I was trying to make there. But that said, the Trump point is of course a huge problem. And you know, it's something that I've been thinking about because obviously I following our podcast, wrote the piece about TikTok and why my concern is an ideological one. And the whole point of why I was glad to have that podcast is it's a tough question, right? And it really comes down to being a principle stack argument, yes. which is in my estimation, the concerns about Chinese potential control of this algorithm and being able to control what people see and consume without them being even aware of it outweighs the clear problems of depriving a company of its economic liberty and basically taking away something that they built. Like ByteDance made TikTok what it is. It's a brilliant product. Their algorithms really are the best in the world by far. And they deserve any sort of like in a vacuum to gain all of the return that's going to come from that. They are getting a raw deal. It's not fair that it's getting taken away from them, and it's a bad look for the U.S., and it's bad for U.S. companies because the U.S. sets the precedent of doing this to TikTok. What happens to Facebook in other countries? It's hilarious looking people at Twitter saying, oh, Facebook must be so happy right now. No way. Facebook's scared to death. Like They're very worried that this is going to happen to them in other countries because This precedent is being set, which means you have to approach it with the maximum delicacy and be super clear. This is the reason national security takes priority. We have rules in place that allow for the executive to do this. We're following the rules. To be very clear, the rule of law is still key and important. And then we're doing this. And my regret in that article is it didn't take into account the reality that Donald Trump is president. And it's funny because I do this to you all the time where I'd be like, you know, oh, you asked for more regulation, but who's the actual executive, (laughs)
1: right? (laughs) Thank you for making that. It was coming.
0: In the best of cases where he's doing it for the right motivations, he's not that sort of communicator. He's a very sort of blunt communicator, in this case, he doesn't have the right motivations. And like again, it's like a mob deal. And I worry and despair that the right thing's going to happen for the wrong reasons, which might be okay until you cross the line to where the actions surrounding it become so destructive broadly. That's like, what have I won? Yeah, it's true. It truly is true. And another narrative
1: way in on this whole thing is those folks who started that company in China they are just like the rest of the folks in China. They're not like signing up to be in the CCP necessarily. They're just like creating a company. And just like you born in Australia or born in Taiwan or born in America and you create a company and it's done incredibly well. And again,
0: like that's... And and to be clear, that's particularly the case with ByteDance. ByteDance has been very, tried very hard to not be political, not be involved. They just want to make cool stuff. I think more than almost any other Chinese company, Zhang Yiming has been very apolitical and tried to stay away from that. And so uh, I I think it, with Byte Bnet Dance in particular, it's even more of a bummer. But the reality is, is that a few years ago, guess what Zhang Yiming came out with? A statement completely abasing himself, saying he will do what the CCP t- tells him to, because they threatened him. They said, yeah, like, they'll take away the company, right? Like, do this or you're out. That's right. And so that's the problem. I feel bad for him, but he's already demonstrated the power of the CCP because he already gave in once. And if that already happened once, he'll do it again but like it's a hard
1: question and uh. it is a hard question tiktok is so interesting because like the way you approach it really can be revealing about the principal stack and i think what became clear in the last episode for you and i is the nature of democracy and having a platform so powerful that has linkages and algorithms developed inside of a country that is authoritarian in nature and it's not clear how much influence they have over the company is too much of a risk oh, it's, for it's very it, clear yeah <laughs> and that's the problem the problem is like or the capability anyway <laughs> the capability totally for the last 180 episodes that's been railing against facebook and one of the best things one of the best antidotes to the centralized power that facebook offers is competition. And like here we have competition and this is being handled so poorly that the possibility that a competing platform that could help resolve some of these problems for democracy and yes, it needs to be outside of the hands of ownership where it's based inside the authoritarian regime where that hand can be put on the algorithm. But at the same time, if you could create that without that risk, what TikTok represents is friggin' amazing. And it's something that like Two years ago when we started, three years ago when we started talking about Facebook, maybe longer, I didn't think that there was a possibility that an entertainment application or whatever you want to call it would emerge that would actually have Instagram and Facebook truly threatened. And yet here it is. And yes, that democracy principle stack is really important, but there's an economic one not far behind. It might not even be economic. It's also democracy. Like having competition between these giants is good for democracy. We've just handled it so poorly that we're losing that opportunity.
0: Can I make an observation? Yes. You just noted that two years ago, you couldn't have imagined an app like this coming along to compete. Totally. Well, I'm just saying that is a good example of why Declarations that these companies are dominant and will never have competitors should be, you should be careful. Like it was assumed that IBM would never have competition, Microsoft never have competition. Two years ago, Facebook never competition. It turns out that the competitive space, particularly in a world where you don't control access, you only can seek to control attention of hundreds of millions or billions of individual actors is probably more fleeting than it appears. And this gets back to there's a certain static view of the world. And if you think the world is going to look exactly as it does right now, then, of course, there's antitrust problems. But the problem is that the world is dynamic. The world changes. And just to sort of bring this back a bit, I think it's interesting that you sort of admitted to this point that you had a static view of the world in 2018, and it turned out the world was more dynamic than you expected. I completely agree. But can I make a countervailing point, which is the
1: reason this emerged was there was a place in which Facebook wasn't able to operate and wasn't able to dominate. And it is an anomaly of this debate that we're having that TikTok
0: and ByteDance even exists. I completely disagree. Yes, ByteDance was built in China. Absolutely. But Snapchat has emerged in the US. Snapchat has more users, 350 million users iMessage has hundreds of millions of users. WhatsApp grew up outside of Facebook. That's why the acquisition was a problem is because WhatsApp managed to acquire a billion users on their own. Like there is actually zero evidence that it is impossible to acquire users for a social network. All evidence runs in the other direction. To the extent Facebook and Google are a problem, it's their control of the advertising stack. But that's a different issue. And I completely reject this idea that it's impossible to build a social network outside of Facebook. There's no evidence of that. In terms of one that actually exit, well, I mean, this is one that- That's an advertising issue, though. There's no-
1: Yeah, and and I agree. I agree. It is an advertising issue. It's fundamentally an advertising issue.
0: I mean, I think we're closer than than the way- No, we're not on this. It really bothered me in the hearing. One of the things that folks said again and again was like, oh, Facebook, every social network that existed when you started no longer exists. Therefore, you're a monopoly. And there was no mention of Snapchat- there is no mention of all the messaging networks that rose up. There is no message of TikTok. TikTok didn't even come up in the hearing. There are serious concerns about I've talked about this a million times. The fact that from an advertising decision-making perspective, it is almost always easier and better to choose Facebook because the R and the I are both in your favor. Right. And, Agreed. And that's Okay. But there's no evidence that it is impossible to get a large amount of users for a new social network. Okay, I agree. I misspoke.
1: It's possible to get a large number of users. What it's not possible to do is to build a business that's sustainable with those large numbers of users. Or at least there's been no evidence to suggest that there is, which is effectively to say the same thing as what I said. Like You can have all the users. If you can't make any money out of it, what good is it? How much is Snapchat worth today?
0: I mean... $32 billion. Okay this is why the Chicago School came about. (laughs) Because they looked at the Harvard School it's like you're making these wide-ranging statements without actually looking at the data. And again, I'm happy to get into the ins and outs of advertising. But to say that the only reason that TikTok emerged is because China had the great firewall, I just don't think matches reality. And that's fine. We can agree to disagree, but I pretty strongly disagree on this point.
1: Yeah, I mean, how much money did TikTok have to spend on user acquisition inside of foreign countries that they wouldn't have not have had the money to do, did
0: they not have the business inside of China in the first place? Oh, please. You think that venture capitalists wouldn't have funded that? It's one of the most amazing opportunities. That's the reason why Microsoft's considering acquiring it. This could be a trillion-dollar company. I mean, I agree with that. That's why venture capital exists. I mean, like there's zero evidence in the world, James, of not having access to sufficient capital. (laughs) Like, I just, we're going to disagree. You're not going to convince me at this point. Yeah. Okay. All right. People thought they were burning money. Like, people literally thought this was crazy. People thought Facebook was crazy for buying Instagram for a billion dollars. The history of people thinking that folks making large bets are crazy is endemic to tech. Yeah. Granted. (laughs) Granted. (laughs) Anyhow, yeah, though, we still haven't solved the question. You asked me 30 minutes ago. We ended up on like 47 tangents in a big argument. Uh, <laughs> that People like the arguments. We do. What should the organizing principle be for these laws? And my answer was, well, no, let's make clear that we need to have sort of new laws. And granted your point that maybe focusing just on economics goes in the wrong direction. There's another analogy for this, which is CEOs should be sort of Dictators, right? Like companies don't work as democracies where everyone votes on what the next product feature is going to be, right? We admire Steve Jobs for being a dictator and sort of grimace at the fact when he was too much of a dictator. So the point is, why do we not want dictators for government? Well, because government has guns, right? They have the power to take it too far. And so democracy is inefficient and works poorly, but that's often a feature, not just a bug, in particularly if you're concerned about totalitarianism and sort of the downsides that can result from that, right? That's a good example of the way you want to think about companies is not when you think about sort of governments. And I think your point you are driving at before, companies should be maximizing profits, should be maximizing their economic returns, but maybe that shouldn't be the government's focus? Yes. And it's troubling, like the point at which
1: it started to shift. And, and again, like we talked about in the Great Depression, you can understand it. And in World War II, you can really understand it. Like economics is a big part of winning wars. You have a bigger economy, you end up being in a better position to win a war. Like I can see why the shifts started to happen. But the thing for me that's been so revealing and so enlightening for me over the past 12 to 18 months as we've begun to talk about this is the contrast with China. And like that is the Chinese approach, and it is not the Western liberal approach. And it was, again, heartening to me to see in the opening and closing statements, at least, if not always in the questioning, that when these things become too powerful, they threaten democracy. It's the role of government to create a fertile ground. It's not the role of
0: government to start picking the winners. Yeah. I'm very happy I wrote that this week, which is back in 2016, when all the tech leaders were going to meet with Trump and everyone was like raising a big ruckus before it happened. Oh, they shouldn't do the blah, 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 blah. And then after the meeting, the New York Times wrote this article. It's like, oh, that wasn't so bad. You know, It was like, oh, you thought this was going to be, deal? wasn't so bad. And I wrote a daily update sort of about using that article as a pivot point saying like, no, this meeting was terrible. And the reason it was terrible is because Trump's statements that I want to help you. I want to, you know, if you have any problems, call me up. That's the problem. The problem is the interference and the picking of winners and losers as opposed to being the referee and setting the rules of the game. So just from a very basic standpoint, that's sort of principle number one is the government shouldn't be involved directly. But I think principle number two that you're driving at gets to this idea of why do we want CEOs to be dictators, but not presidents? And if you want to put it in economic terms, we have a need for innovation. We have a need for the creation of new ideas, new products, new markets. And as we've talked about in the context of disruption in particular, incumbent companies are actually very bad at that because they end up serving very rich customers that can afford their products and they are incentivized to increase the prices and increase the complexity and increase the features. And all new companies start out with the the world is their oyster. They can serve anyone. Uh, We use this analogy a a few podcasts ago. I can't remember which one. But the more a company builds, it becomes like they started out as like, you know, you're just walking around. When you walk, you can go anywhere. Then you get in sort of like a scooter and you can't quite go anywhere, but you can go lots of places. Then you get a car and you're a little bit more constrained. And the more you build, you eventually become like a bullet train where you can go faster and more quickly and absolutely dominate in your area, but your flexibility is almost completely gone. There's only one place you can go, and that's when disruption happens. When the bullet train is going to Tokyo and the opportunity is in Okayama or wherever it might be, there's a station in That That's a bad example. But you give my example where you lose the flexibility of changing where you go, and that's the opportunity for startups. And I remember we had a discussion with being of exponent, where having a ton of assets is often viewed as a good thing, it's not just that it's not an advantage, it's an active disadvantage because those assets are expected to be used in a certain way and not in other ways. And so you have this sort of framework and you mentioned the buying lots of ads by TikTok. That was a great example of Facebook acting like a big company. Of course, they're going to take that money. Why wouldn't they? That's what their business is. And they were actually enabling the creation of their competitor. It was a brilliant example of this dynamic at work, where you do what's good for the bottom line, and that is what actually leads to your demise. And that is what needs to be the organizing principle of our laws and regulations, is not... Maximizing economic output because companies will do that on their own. It's maximizing the possibilities for these things to emerge such that we can build new train tracks for the future as opposed to making an ever faster bullet train. Right, 100%. And if you are a
1: policymaker and you are trying to do the right thing by the people who are on the bullet trains, as opposed to the people who are thinking about building new tracks, just to continue your metaphor, you're actually ossifying your economy. You're creating a nested version of this where part of the dynamism of the American economy has been that there've been companies that come along and disrupt. And again, who would have thought 20 years ago when we were young whippersnappers looking at the tech and I used to get up and read all this stuff and who would have thought that Microsoft, the next round of antitrust hearings focused on tech 20 years later, the big bad guy from the late 1990s wouldn't even get a seat at the table. It's Although they probably deserve one, but...
0: (laughs) Yeah, maybe they do. And
1: maybe if they get TikTok, they'll get one after all. But, like, the point is, you're kind of spreading this problem throughout the economy. You want people attacking those guys. You don't want to be out there trying to prop them up and do deals to make them even. They've got plenty of resources. They
0: don't need the help. Yeah. Another analogy that I think makes this point is the problem with patents, particularly in technology. Mm, yes. Like a patent is a bad thing. A patent is a government-granted monopoly. That's a bad thing, but it's a trade-off. The trade-off is, well, we want to incentivize innovation and the creation of new things and such that they can enable profit. The reason we accept this downside of monopoly is because we want the upside of innovation. Well, in technology, there's so much return and gain to being first because network effects kick in, you get developers in your platform, et cetera, et cetera. We don't need to put fuel on the fire. There is massive return from innovating technology and layering on patents on top of that is just, it misses the point. And it's the exact same thing. That's what you're driving at here. Companies are plenty incentivized to maximize their economic returns. They are very good at it. The bullet train operator is very good at building trains. He's spending billions of dollars on research and development to build faster bullet trains. What we need to be concerned about is the folks that are trying to go in a different direction. Right.
1: I love that you brought up this analogy because it ties so perfectly back into the point you were making about the origins of the Chicago school and how something can be taken too far. And when I think of intellectual property now inside of the United States, I get the origins of it, but it's just being taken way too far to the point where it is no longer serving a positive purpose. It feels much more like a drag, but because you've got all these people who are making all this money, who have the ears of the people who make all
0: the laws, the problem continues. Oh, it's even worse in Europe. I mean, the, the copyright directive, like you have to pre-screen content. Like they say, oh, technically you don't have to pre-screen. The way it's written, you effectively have to, like, it's ridiculous. But I mean, not to go on <laughs> another tangent, but yeah, and this gets at, I think, the political points that the new Brandeis School broadly focuses on, which is you have big companies that get the ear of the government, the government rights regulations that favor them, regulatory capture, all the things that we talk about. It's true. It's a good point. You end up choking out new things, choking out new growth. I don't have the answers to this issue. And I get a little frustrated because I'm poking at the antitrust argument against big tech company. And people take that as me being in favor of being large. And and, I mean, not to pick on you because I know you didn't mean it, but it's like saying, oh, just because I point out some of the Republicans, that means I'm pro-Trump. Wait, no, just because I'm pointing out that your antitrust argument doesn't work does not mean I am in favor of only having five companies that matter. I poke at it because I'm extremely concerned about it. I'm extremely concerned about not having sufficient innovation. I'm extremely concerned about the China point where China is clearly choosing the giant approach where we're going to have a few champions. And the answer has to be, we are never going to out authoritarian China. We're never going to out centralize China. We have to go in the opposite direction as far as we can. And so I would argue, my dear people that are picking on me. I care about it more than you do by virtue of getting at the underlying assumptions and the tools that you're trying to use to accomplish this and saying, look, the tools, A, don't work. And B, if you misapply them, it's going to make the problem worse. I completely agree. Fired up. Yeah. I appreciate you allowing me to unleash this. I mean, this is just a problem in online discourse. You see in product development. You see it in politics. You see it everywhere where Stuff gets bundled together, and those bundles emerge for a reason. And it could be pricing bundles, could be political belief bundles, like what are parties but bundles of beliefs in in many respects. And if you think through the implication of the internet and, and tying it back to something like the printing press, like what the printing press did, we used to have a world of city states underneath a broad fabric of the Catholic Church. It transformed that into nation states. And they changed the stack of like what was actually the most powerful entities in the world. And they did that for economic reasons, which was that the kinds of scale meant producing lots of books in a common language was a good thing. And that unified languages and et cetera, et cetera. If you follow through on the idea that the internet is a new communications medium that doesn't just enable zero marginal cost on the product side, but also on the production side where you, anyone can now create content that is probably going to lead to a similar sort of disruption and unbundling of the world as it is today. And if you insist on painting everyone according to your view of what the bundles are in the world, such that, oh, you're against the antitrust argument, you must be pro-big company. You are doing yourself a disservice, and you're failing to appreciate the implication of what the internet means for society.
1: Yeah. I agree. I think this is what I appreciate about the theme that we've run through the last few episodes of using principles to get at this because it, it allows us to talk about the underlying thing and what matters most as the basis of the conversation, as
0: opposed to calling each other names. I agree too. The principle stack is very useful because what it provides you with is an orthogonal view of the issues at hand. It's like, let's leave aside the issues. What actually matters to you? Okay. Now let's reapply it to the issues. And wow, actually in this case, it's like, well, maybe those crazy Republicans going on about censorship might be on to something, even though I disagree with their line of questioning or their outcomes, but actually they might be closer to the truth of the matter in some respects than the folks that feel like they have it all under control because they're stuck in an economic frame when actually the political frame might be more important. Yeah. Agreed. Oh, (laughs) I.
1: I feel like I owe you an apology for painting you with Trump. That was no, not No, I appreciate what I it. it to be fun to have yeah. you even more fired up. <laughs> uh, very good. It's good chatting. It sounds good. I'll talk to you later. See you, mate. Bye.